Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with underwater explosions that ruptured the Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2 pipelines shipping Russian gas under the Baltic Sea to Germany, which are now causing gas to bubble up to the surface as seawater fills the pipelines while the remaining gas escapes. Joining us is Dr. Paul Sullivan, a senior fellow at the Global Energy Center of the Atlantic Council, whose current research focuses on EU energy security, EU-Russian energy relations, and Arctic energy issues. With most fingers pointing at Russia for this obvious sabotage, we'll discuss what appears to be a desperate act of defiance by Putin, letting Germany and the Europeans know, if you don't want Russian gas, well, you're never going to get it. Then we will examine these disunited states of America and how likely it is that Trump, who, like Putin, is cornered, will try to initiate a civil war to avoid jail. Joining us is Stephen Simon, the Robert E. Wilhelm Fellow at the Center for International Studies at MIT. With a 15-year career in the United States Department of State, he served as the National Security Council Senior Director for the Middle East and North Africa during the Obama administration, and as the National Security Council Senior Director for Counterterrorism in the Clinton White House. His forthcoming book is Grand Delusion, The Rise and Fall of American Ambition in the Middle East, and we will discuss his article at the New York Review of Books, These Disunited States. Then finally, with teachers and other workers going on strike across Iran today, we will assess how much the revolution sparked by young women is now being joined by a majority of Iranians from all walks of life who are tired of the religious repression imposed by hypocritical clerics who are stealing the country blind. Joining us is Dr. Moshin Zazagara, an Iranian journalist and pro-democracy political activist who was a founder of the Iranian Revolutionary Guards Corps and held several high-ranking positions during the early years of the Iranian Revolution. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our non-profit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Dr. Paul Sullivan, who's a senior fellow at the Global Energy Center of the Atlantic Council, whose current research focuses on EU energy security, EU-Russian energy relations, and Arctic energy issues. He was a full professor at the National Defense University for over 22 years, where he ran the energy industry study, taught industry analytics and the economics of national security. And he also has taught at Georgetown, the American University in Cairo, Yale University, and now teaches at Johns Hopkins. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Paul Sullivan. Well, hello again. Yes, the world gets simpler by the day, I think. (laughs) Well, this mysterious underwater explosions that's taken out the two Nord Stream pipelines just off a Danish island, not too far from the pipeline's destination in Germany, that's belching out gas through the Baltic Sea, most analysts have pointed the finger at Russia. So why would they have done this? What, what, what is the motive behind blowing up these two uh, gas pipelines? Well, it's energy terrorism and it's political terrorism. Uh, it looks to be that the objective is to cause further tensions within uh, the EU community and uh, between the EU community and their energy suppliers. Because obviously after this, what's happening is uh, many people in the EU are looking closer at security arrangements for all of their energy facilities. And if they're not, they should be. And also they're going to be increasing demands for long-term supplies of natural gas because these pipelines are shot now. 
no pun intended, but what happens when you blow one of these things up? And we're talking about uh, anywhere from, let's say, 80 to 120 meters under the sea. That's a lot of water pressure. Salt water is pouring into these pipes. And the only natural gas that was in there, they weren't really flowing naturally to supply any country, uh, was to fill the pipe itself. So all this gas is pouring out and being replaced by salt water, uh, which means uh, if ever the Germans and anyone else who wanted to import natural gas from this pipeline in the future, uh, there will be further delays, if absolutely useless, depending on how long they're sitting in salt water. And that salt water will affect the other mechanisms attached to the pipelines. It's a, certainly an energy uh, disaster for uh, Germany in the long run, even though they had expected all the natural gas to Russia to be pretty much cut off. What this does is it ends it. Uh, this could be seen as the Russian signal that is, well, you don't want my natural gas anymore? No, you're never going to get it. Uh, but I wonder what this does with the insurance and the companies working on these uh, pipelines, but that's another issue. Uh, but uh, Putin has not claimed it. The Russians have not claimed it. Uh, that could be part of the uh, ambiguity and tension that uh, they want to build. And clearly, they want to give the sense that this is a false flag operation. It would be no way that the Russians would do this. What benefit would there be? To them, they're not going to be exporting any more natural gas. Uh, one of the main objectives of this whole business that's going on is to split the EU away from Ukraine and to split the EU. Uh, Putin never liked the idea of the EU, never liked that they had some solidarity against him, and, and really can't stand the idea of NATO. So the more disruption he and his people, like the Wagner Group and the Bratva, can do to upset EU solidarity and peacefulness, they'll do it. Now, think about folks, regular folks, uh, this winter when the prices of their natural gas and electricity and just whatever, everything else is going through the roof. Uh, and now they have this concern about, wait a minute, this pipeline that could have backed us up at some time in the future is not going to be there. So the tensions ratchet up even more so. There is no definitive proof yet who did this. I'm sure there are excellent investigators looking into this from all angles, uh, but it's certainly who, cui bono, who will gain from this? The only group that could possibly gain from this uh, would be uh, Putin and his crowd, not the Russians as such. Uh, Putin is very separate from the rest of Russia. Look at what he's doing to his own people. He's sending young men to, to be cannon fodder. He represents himself now. And he's becoming increasingly separated, except for the extremists in Russia, from the rest of the Russian population. Well, the seismic recordings indicated that there were three explosions underwater, two on one of the pipelines and one on either on Nord Stream 1 or Nord Stream 2. And uh, I don't think Russian organized crime would have the assets to blow up pipelines, but Wagner would, and of course yes. the Russian um, FSB would as well. I mean, it would. you could just drop a couple of depth charges down, right? Well, you see, if you did that, it would be observed. I see. And it so it was done heard. by a submarine then? My guess is I don't have the evidence. All of what I'm telling you is speculation based on many years of studying this sort of business. Uh, and I know for your listeners that may well, well, what is he talking about? Many subs or marine drones could be let loose from shorelines. They can be fairly quiet. If, if submarines would be picked up, I'm sure those are big bubbas in the water. Small marine drone, that's a possibility. Uh, divers going down there, uh, if you're going into 100 meters of water, let's say you need special gas. Uh, the bubbles could be heard. And that area is not exactly non-observed. Whoever did this had a certain degree of expertise to get around observation. Uh, take a look at it. This is one of the choke points in the Baltic Sea. The Swedes and, and the Danes heard this happen. Sure. So what about the, uh, I've seen the pictures of the, of the gas bubbling up. 
that in itself looks like an environmental hazard. I mean, methane, of course, is a terrible global warming gas. Well, I have been trying to figure out calculations that I've been asking around, but the problem is we're not sure what the actual flow is. This is a lot like the Deepwater Horizon rig when uh, the oil started to pour out, and I'm looking at the video of the oil pouring out, and I'm listening to BP and other oil companies saying, uh, it's only this amount, like 5,000 gallons a day. And I, I brought a video into one of my classes, and I said, this is a lot more than 5,000 gallons a day, folks. We're talking about, oh, God, uh, it depends on how many other of these bubble-up situations there are. But we're talking about, oh, hundreds of millions of cubic meters of natural gas pouring into the atmosphere uh, every hour. Uh, that's a lot. And then multiply it by how many days it's going to take to fix this. And this stuff is going up into the atmosphere. Uh, one concern certainly is what is this doing to the wildlife, but also what if there are wind ships and this stuff is blown near any kind of uh, ships or population centers? Uh, right now, from the pictures I've seen, the, the winds seem pretty calm. If they start to get stronger, there could be even worse. And now, another thing that I found very interesting uh, is the authorities in that area have banned ships from going near these areas where the gas is bubbling up. There's a very good reason for that. If you drove a boat or a ship over one of these things, you can actually sink if the bubbling is big enough. It destroys part of the buoyancy of the ship to go over something that has a lot of bubbling up. Uh, you know, you could practice it in a pool or whatever. If you have a scuba tank and you you send a small uh, boat across it, you'll see that thing bounce around a bit and, and then buoyancy gone. But isn't what's happening in terms of the bubbling up, that's what's left in the pipes. And the pipes go all the way back to Leningrad, all the way to uh, Germany. So in other words... Because they've already cut off the gas, the Russians have cut off the gas. So this is, just, as you said earlier, this is gas that's left in the pipe. How long before that's emptied out and the seawater takes over? The seawater is already pouring in because the pressure in the pipes is declining as more gas is let out. That's the way natural gas works. I really don't know how much was in the pipeline, but the numbers I've heard for filling it up could range from anywhere from, oh, I, I'm not even going to guess right now. I'd have to figure out the volume of it and uh, how much pressure was involved because clearly with the natural gas coming up with these kinds of bubbles, it's pressurized. And you would have to pressurize it in order to keep out any water, what would happen with a small leak. Uh, I, when people who uh, figured out these pipelines probably didn't even think that someone would be mad enough to blow one of them up and they didn't set any fail safes in i really don't know how long it will take uh and but that's a good question i can ask people about that you're talking about hundreds of kilometers of pipe parallel pipes uh connected with other pipes which is a concern i have as well because if there's going to be reduced pressure in the main trunk line I certainly hope the connections with the smaller distribution and uh, transmission lines to Germany and other countries are locked down solid because otherwise this thing is going to start pulling with negative pressure on these other pipelines. And then things start to get very weird. But I'm assuming they have it all uh, closed off with uh, O-rings and all this other business. But there's some very complicated engineering and physics that people are going to have to start thinking about. Right now, most people are looking at the natural gas bubbling up and saying how terrible. Yes, that's a powerful greenhouse gas. Uh, more than likely, what's coming up out of uh, these uh, holes is a lot more than the leaking of methane uh, that was discovered in some uh, stations and fields. And uh, if you remember, it's in California a couple of years ago, and everyone was concerned about, wow, that's a lot of natural gas. Can this have an effect on the climate? Uh, of course it can, but it, in the long run, it's probably going to be somewhat minuscule if they get control over it. The question is, can someone get to these pipelines and seal them off? This should have been done almost immediately. There are ways of doing that. 
for an oil pipeline, there's actually something that you jam into the pipeline, a cutoff uh, switch to stop the flow of uh, the oil. The natural gas should have something similar. That you may remember from the from the BP uh, Deepwater Horizon, there was one of these things that was kind of like a big knife that was supposed to cut off the movement of uh, the the oil coming up and they figured out some way with the Minerals and Mining Service to corruptly not have that work through audio. You just send up audio signals that things would shut off the oil. They were able to get around that. I am astonished that this has been allowed to leak this much for this long without a long discussion about how to stop it. Well, but we've only got a minute left here. I wanted to find out, just to summarize, Dr. Paul Sullivan, this looks like Putin has deliberately blown up the Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2 pipelines, almost like a child uh, packing up his marbles and leaving and pouting. This is a sort of act of supreme vandalism from somebody who's just saying to the Europeans, okay, you don't want our gas, you're never going to get it. Is that That's a summary? Well, it's, it could be. Again, we don't know all the, the facts yet, and usually when these things happen, there's a lot of uh, the fog of war associated with them. Uh, but this is the same person who said he would use nuclear weapons. This is not someone, he's somewhat untethered from reality right now. Well, Dr. Paul Sullivan, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Dr. Paul Sullivan, who's a senior fellow at the Global Energy Center of the Atlantic Council, whose current research focuses on EU energy security, EU-Russian energy relations, and Arctic energy issues. He was a full professor at the National Defense University for over 22 years, where he ran the energy industry study, taught industry analytics, and the economics of national security. He's also taught at Georgetown the American University in Cairo, Yale University, and now teaches at Johns Hopkins. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back examining these disunited states of America and how likely it is that Trump, who, like Putin, is cornered, will try to initiate a civil war to avoid jail. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Stephen Simon, the Robert E. Wilhelm Fellow at the Center for International Studies at MIT, with a 15-year career at the United States Department of State. He served as the National Security Council Senior Director for the Middle East and North Africa during the Obama administration, and as the National Security Council Senior Director for Counterterrorism in the Clinton White House. His forthcoming book is Grand Delusion, The Rise and Fall of American Ambition in the Middle East, and he has an article at the New York Review of Books, These Disunited States. Welcome to Background Briefing, Stephen Simon. Hi there. Well, thanks for joining us. And in Russia, you have Putin running a mafia state as a mafia don, and you have here in the United States Donald Trump who's a wannabe mafia don, trying to make a political comeback. And he has obviously been divisive from day one. And his relationship with Putin has always been opaque to the point where the director of national intelligence, or former director of national intelligence, James Clapper, once said that Putin is Donald Trump's case officer. At this point, they seem to have a lot in common. They're both trapped In the case of Putin, because of his disastrous war in Ukraine, he may use a nuclear weapon. In the case of Donald Trump, he seems to be sort of trying to spark a civil war. This is a pretty dire, if not disastrous, situation. Am I exaggerating, Stephen? I don't think so. Um, Putin has obviously wrecked havoc in... um, 
you know, he's he's he will presumably reap what he sows uh, at home. Uh, Trump, uh, you know, never exercised the kind of control uh, over the United States and its institutions and its and its government operations that Putin, uh, you know, can do uh, in Russia. Uh, they occupy different places, I suppose, in the spectrum of authoritarianism. Um, American institutions proved still relatively robust, you know, I would say, which is one of the reasons <laughs> why Joe Biden is president and, um, uh, and Trump is not at this point. But they are, or so it appears, that they are on track for a rematch because even if Donald Trump is indicted, uh, he can still run for president on any of his party, you know, if he hasn't been convicted, of course. But, you know, an indictment won't make a, you know, won't make a practical difference. And there isn't at present in the Democratic Party a replacement for Joe Biden on the ticket that, you know, the party bulls uh, can really settle upon. So we might well have uh, this sort of strange rematch of uh, two older men uh, battling it out once again, uh, except the situation uh, will be a little bit more fraught uh, than it was in 2020, since the uh, Republicans, uh, many Republicans have said uh, that uh, they would not necessarily abide by the results of the election in 2024 if the Democratic candidate were the winner. Uh, they have said that uh, they don't trust the electoral system. Um, they would trust it if it resulted in a Trump victory, presumably, but um, they don't. Uh, they won't trust it, uh, they say, if, if Biden is the winner. Uh, that will generate something of a crisis under the circumstances, especially if uh, the uh, Republicans have control of uh, one or both houses of Congress and maintain their current dominance in the U.S. Supreme Court. Under the conditions, uh, I, I think we can expect to see uh, a Biden victory, if he's the candidate and he wins, um, a challenged uh, by, uh, by the Republicans. And um, uh, that will set in motion a, a chain of very dangerous events. But the only way to avoid this is for the American people to vote for the Democrats and not vote for the Republicans in November. And I'm somewhat astounded as to why the Democratic message is not that if you don't vote in November, this may be your last chance to vote, because it's absolutely clear as day that the Republicans are capturing the electoral machinery around the country to control it and to bring Trump back. And, you know, he conducted a coup to try and stop the certification of the last election, and it seems like they've learned a lot since then, and they're systematically taking over the electoral machinery in states and counties across the country. So that's case number one that should be made. And case number two is, again, going back to my original question, is, you know, we know that Putin's main strategy with, you know, Glavny Protivnik, the main enemy, is that he is exacerbating divisions that already exist in the United States and the perfect instrument to divide and turn us against each other has been Donald Trump. Uh, yeah, well, I do agree with that. Uh, but I'm a bit more cautious in, in uh, you know, in my, in my thinking in one respect, which is uh, the extent to which Donald Trump emerged from serious divisions, which he then widened as against having created these divisions. In uh, uh, my view, uh, and I think the historical record supports this, these, these deep divisions in, in American society 
have been in play now really uh, since the mid 70s or maybe you know a bit earlier you could trace it back uh, to the 1968 you know democratic primary and the 1968 uh, general election which put richard nixon into into office these divisions were were deep then and they engendered violence then and they haven't healed uh, if anything uh, they've gotten worse and successive republican presidents have been able to exploit these divisions but trump uh, was the first president really to disregard all the rules and guardrails and you know manifestations of propriety uh, that uh, have i mean in a sense limited the freedom of action of his republican predecessors and now he's and and he used his presidency to tear open those existing divisions so I guess you know we perhaps we differ in in, uh, in nuance more than more than anything else, and it is true that the Russians have intervened through um, uh, you know a, a covert operation of astonishing scale in perpetuating and and deepening the divisions that Trump uh, was working at, uh, and it was a fairly sophisticated operation. You know, one uh, uh, a former head of the Mossad, uh, uh, whom I met, uh, you know, for a chat, I guess a couple of years ago now, uh, and who knows something about covert operations, uh, you know, said that uh, Hillary Clinton's loss uh, in uh, in 2016 was the achievement of the most effective covert operation he had ever witnessed in his career. And of course, in February uh, 2017, uh, the United States government uh, in the form of, um, you know, the FBI and CIA and National Security and National Security Agency all uh, came together in delivering to the public an unclassified version of a study they did on the Russian role in the U.S. election that brought Trump to power. And they were very cautious in their wording. They laid out this staggering array of steps the Russians had taken, but they desisted from issuing a judgment as to whether these Russian actions had helped Trump or hurt Hillary Clinton. They just spelled out what the Russians were doing and left it to the reader to draw her his own, you know, conclusion, you know, about the impact of, of these steps. So, you know, Putin, who, uh, you know, is famous for having begun his career in the KGB in Germany, for the most part, you know, before relocating uh, to to um, St. Petersburg, uh, was quite an expert in these things and and knew a lot about them. And I, you know, his relationship, the bromance between uh, Trump and and Putin, which seems to be mostly on Trump's side, uh, uh, was uh, was something that he was able to use quite effectively in the way that a case handler would manage the emotions and motivations of his asset. And again, I'm speaking with Stephen Simon, who's the Robert E. Wilhelm Fellow at the Center for International Studies at MIT, with a 15-year career at the United States Department of State. He served as the National Security Council Senior Director for the Middle East and North Africa during the Obama administration, and as the National Security Council Senior Director for Counterterrorism in the Clinton White House. His forthcoming book is Grand Delusion, The Rise and Fall of American Ambition in the Middle East, and he has an article at the New York Review of Books, These Disunited States. So given that they're both trapped now, Putin in Ukraine and Trump with mounting legal problems, do you accept the premise that, in fact, Trump has made signal to this a couple of times, he signaled earlier on to Attorney General Garland, uh, you know, let's turn the heat down. It's kind of mafia boss talk. You know, it's like, you know, going to an antique shop and saying, you've got beautiful stuff in here. It'd be a pity if this store burned down. And then at his recent rally in 
Ohio, where all those QAnon followers gave their one-fingered fingered Nazi salute, he uh, embraced QAnon, and many analysts think that that was again a signal to Attorney General Garland, if you indict me, I'll unleash these crazies. Well, the the Republicans have said, and Lindsey Graham said this just, um, I don't know, maybe last week or the week before that, you know, if you if you mess with Trump, you're going to wind up with violence in the streets. And uh, that's exactly a kind of a mafia threat that wasn't a kind of uh, disinterested analytical judgment. Uh, it was um, uh, what one might call extortion in, in any other context. You know, you've got nice political institutions here. It would be a shame if anything were to happen to them. And the threat of violence is, uh, you know, very much in the playbook of authoritarians or would-be authoritarians. Uh, and one saw this, you know, at the very uh, origins of, of fascism. Uh, in Europe in the 20th century, and they seem to be uh, replaying here in the 21st century. And and the Republicans have thought a lot about this. The, the right, at any rate, has thought a lot about this. And there's a book called The Politics of Confrontation, which sort of spells out, you know, how you do this. And it's a very popular uh, text uh, right now among the right who are thinking about the ways in which they might um, uh, seize power or improve their chances of seizing power uh, in an electoral context or in the period following uh, an electoral win, whether, you know, that win resulted from a win of the popular vote or a win of the electoral vote or just a successful challenge to uh, democratic, you know, victory. They're, they're thinking about how to, how to push this. Uh, to a to a crisis point, and you know there's plenty of polling data uh, that suggests that at least you know on the right, you know people are thinking about whether, for example, you know there are circumstances under which a quote unquote patriot might uh, have to resort to violence in order to preserve, uh, you know, the country's values or its integrity or something like that. And, uh, you know, violence is, it's, it's in the playbook. Democrats don't do that really well, but they might learn. And, and, and then, you know, we'll really be in the soup. So let's talk in the last few minutes then, uh, Stephen Simon, about your article, The New York Review of Books, These Disunited States, subtitle which is it is time to consider a radical solution to stave off the prospect of political violence and even civil war in the united states and as you point out the democrats aren't necessarily running around with ak-47s and ar-15s but they may learn from the republicans that's not exactly a comforting prospect what can be done to either name and shame and call out these violent people or most of all, what can be done to stop the person who may well use this tool, Donald Trump? Well, uh, there, are, there are two big questions here. Um, the first is, how can the, let's just say, how can concerned citizens make it difficult for a Trump or his you know, Republican equivalent in 2024 to steal the election, how can that be? How can that be prevented? And Democrats are thinking hard about this, and and mostly the thinking, uh, you know, devolves to identifying key swing states where one can expect the election to be very close, and where the Republicans have been working hard to infiltrate the electoral capacities, you know, at the state level you know, in order to throw the electoral vote. So, uh, you know, the Democratic answer to that right now is to have rapid reaction legal teams in these states who can observe election shenanigans, if there are any, and challenge them rapidly in the court or in the courts. 
you know, there's an issue there because, you know, if these things go to the Supreme Court, uh, the Supreme Court is beholden to Trump, or so it appears uh, at this point, and, uh, and there might be no satisfaction available in that route. What we talk about in the article, because that is myself and, and, and my co-author, is a, a situation where, you know, maybe the best way to avoid uh, violence or conflict is to defederalize, which is to say, you know, look, it's just time uh, to part, you know, peacefully. And as the result of a negotiated process, that is to say, red states, blue states, just reverse the federalization that was put in place uh, by the uh, Constitutional Convention and was challenged in the Civil War and, and reinstituted. Well, maybe it's maybe it's time to say, look, this broad federation isn't really working out because we're 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 effectively at this point a binational state. That means you know we've got one government presiding over what amount to two separate countries. And uh, these two separate countries have very different values. Um, uh, they appreciate different things. They condemn different things. They have different economic assumptions. They have different economic preferences. Uh, there, there are a lot of major differences, and these are causing a lot of uh, tension and could uh, result in violence. And, and nobody really wants that. Nobody really wants that. So, um, you know, you just separate these two countries. Now, this is not an easy thing to do because the distribution uh, of political philosophies, the geographical distribution doesn't necessarily respect state boundaries. So, for example, I'm a Mainer. You know, I live in Maine. And, you know, on the coast of Maine, it's it's pretty blue, but you go into the interior of Maine and it's very red. It's, it's real Trump country. So, um, you know, and Maine isn't the only state where you have an intermixed population. Um, so it's one state, but it's got, you know, clusters, clusters of red or clusters of blue voters in the midst of, um, uh, you know, a wider red or blue uh, uh, inclined population. So we would have to figure out how to protect red voters who decide to remain in, in blue states and, and blue voters who decide to remain in red states. That is to say, these minority populations, they're moving to uh, states that are more congenial, will have to be facilitated, and, and that will cost money. And the thing is that the decision of each state whether or not to do this in a referendum will itself be a very dangerous thing because in each state you're going to have advocates of staying together as a country or splitting you know into two and the advocates of the one side will be battling the advocates of the other now hopefully you know it'll the the, the battles will be uh, peaceful but they could uh, they could degenerate into violence depending on the state um, uh, that we're talking about. And then there are other big issues because, you know, when the United States became a federal system of the kind that we recognize uh, after the Articles of Confederation uh, were passed in the early days of, of the Republic, the decision to federate was pushed by two factors, really. The one was that, you know, Britain was still out there as an enemy in the late in the late 18th century. And the United States was going to be in a much better position to resist British power if all the colonies were united and they supported, you know, a continental army. And the second reason was that the those colonies and Americans at that time were looking to expand the boundaries of the United States. And they understood that, look, you know, it's going to be really difficult to expand the boundaries of the United States, deal with, uh, you know, other countries that had a piece of, of the North American continent, 
and and um, you know to battle the Native Americans who didn't want to see the colonists expand their territory in the United States. Uh, that mission was going to be much more achievable if the country had a strong federation with a strong central government and a standing army. Well, the thing is that those reasons to have a federation uh, aren't there anymore. The United States really doesn't face the kind of threat that Britain constituted to the United States in the late 18th century. And we've already taken all the land that we can take in North America. So, you know, the reasons for establishing a federation to begin with, well, you know, they've they've passed their sell-by date. Their their shelf life is over. And we shouldn't be hung up on that. We should really want to do what's right for the future of the country and in a way that enables inhabitants of you know what is now the United States of America uh, to avoid conflict you know over political ideological cultural issues that um, you know are prone uh, you know to uh, to cause to cause trouble nowadays now this will be a very you know tricky process and it would require you know at the outset, the agreement of really all Americans that the time has come to separate into like-minded blocks of states. Well, Stephen Simon, I'm afraid we've run out of time, but you've given us an awful lot to think about, <laughs> to say the yeah, least. Yeah, I know, I know. So yeah, I appreciate you joining us here today. You bet. Thanks very much. And again, I've been speaking with Stephen Simon, the Robert E. Wilhelm Fellow at the Center for International Studies at MIT, with a 15-year career at the United States Department of State. He served as the National Security Council Senior Director for the Middle East and North Africa during the Obama administration, and as the National Security Council Senior Director for Counterterrorism in the Clinton White House. His forthcoming book is Grand Delusion, The Rise and Fall of American Ambition in the Middle East, and he has an article at the New York Review of Books, these disunited states. We're going to take a brief station break and back with an assessment of how much the revolution in Iran sparked by young women is now being joined by a majority of Iranians from all walks of life who were tired of the religious repression imposed by hypocritical clerics who are stealing the country blind. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Moshe Sazagara, who is an Iranian journalist and pro-democracy political activist, who was a founder of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps and held several high-ranking positions during the early years of the Iranian Revolution. Welcome to Background Briefing, Motion Sazagara. Good day. Uh, how are you? I'm well, thanks, uh, Motion. And today is the first day in Iran where we haven't had religious holidays. So there's been an expectation that the revolution led by young women uh, for over a week now, very bravely facing the guns and bullets of the regime, uh, might be joined by school teachers and, and truck drivers and bus drivers and and workers in general. Is there any evidence of that happening today, Motion? Yes. Uh, uh, The strike has started with teachers today, from today, 
and uh, with the students in universities, more than 35 uh, universities are on strike. The oil industry's workers, they have issued a statement today and uh, said that uh, we support the movement in Iran and threaten the regime that if you don't uh, listen to the people, then we will go on a strike. For truck drivers, uh, as far as I know so far, uh, uh, we have tried to contact them. Some of them are ready, but you know, they, they should organize them. And uh, as soon as I, I get what they wanna do, I'll update you about uh, uh, their strikes. The other parts of the society, I mean, the Bazaris people, for instance, the shopkeepers, they have been invited for a strike, but uh, it takes time, you know, to uh, mobilize them and uh, to have the organization to uh, organize them. Uh, but it's underway anyway. And, and the other actions like boycotting, the institutions and companies that belong to the leader, for instance, two uh, big banks in Iran, Bank Pasargat Bank and Persian, Persian's bank, they belong to the house of the leader. To, uh, and actually, he has owned more than 50% of the wealth of Iranians. The other... Uh, uh, the action that is going on is to invite the people to boycott whatever belongs to the leader. Uh, we are trying to, uh, you know, uh, make the lists for the people, encourage them to take, uh, uh, close their accounts in these two banks and transfer their money to other banks, especially those old governmental banks from before revolution. And I mean. Uh, these are the actions that is on the way, I mean, to uh, non-cooperative actions, strikes and civil disobedience and non-cooperative actions, besides to two other pillars of civil resistance in Iran, street protests and different types of protests, for instance, hoarding, uh, blowing the horns every night, people in the streets, they do that, uh, or shouting on the roof, uh, uh, and the others in, 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 in protest, supporting the movement, and defection from, from the regime. Just during the last 10 days, many celebrities who supported the regime already, like actors, like sportsmen or women, they changed their ideas. They announced that they are in the side of the people. And amongst the suppression machine of the regime, now there are many difficulties, even uh, including revolutionary guard who was supposed to kill the people. They have problems. There are big cracks inside them. So, I mean, these three pillars of civil resistance, protests, defection, and non-cooperative actions and the strikes Two first ones are, are, are going on, and the third one is on the way. At, it started today with uh, the, the strikes of the teachers and the, the universities. So, Motion, when you say we are involved, uh, t can you talk about your efforts and who you're involved with? Obviously, you, you're in contact with people inside of Iran. Yeah, yeah. Outside Iran, yesterday, uh, a statement uh, was released that uh, the son of the last Shah of Iran, Princess of Ahlabi, and some of the leaders of opposition, including Hassan Shariat Madari, who is an icon for Azaris people in Iran, and uh, uh, some writers like Azare Nafisi and some cultural figures, they signed uh, 21 per person from different portions, the parts of the society. They signed a statement and uh, said that we are together to uh, uh, invite the people for strikes and encourage them and to uh, uh, organize the different parts together. Inside Iran, uh, uh, of course, we have... Uh, uh, People inside Iran, for instance, uh, some of them are now in, in prison. 
some of uh, some the some of the leaders of uh, in every neighborhood. Uh, but we can't announce their name uh, and uh, put their name or signature under uh, the uh, statement as, uh, right now. Maybe later that uh, the uh, suppression uh, will be reduced, uh, then we can announce their name too. But uh, we have contacts with them inside Iran, uh, inside prison, outside prison, because, you know, they have arrested uh, everybody that they knew, any any political opposition or uh, civil society organizers that they knew they have arrested them. But they are not only, but they defeated because they thought that if they arrest these people, the movement will have no reason, no uh, leader. But now they confess in their inside documents that uh, the leaders are very, very young uh, girls and boys, uh, and they don't recognize them. Uh, so uh, this is the reason that it didn't stop. Uh, uh, yeah, anyway, this we is a coalition of uh, opposition uh, to this regime, which is a wide spectrum uh, from different parts of the uh, policy, uh, politics or uh, different parts of the civil society. So across this coalition of opposition, leaders that you're working with and uh, it's interesting that you point out that there's a whole new generation of leaders that the the regime doesn't even know about these young boys and girls that are leading this revolution in particular the girls is it understood across the board in iran that the, the this government has no legitimacy may have had some religious legitimacy early on but essentially what you have ruling iran are uh, is a kind of uh, oligarchy of clerics. Uh, you know, they're basically kleptocrats dressed in robes and that it's it's an economic mafia, uh, as you pointed out. Uh, Mushtaba, the son of uh, uh, of the Supreme Leader Khamenei, uh, he owns two of the biggest banks. Uh, you're asking for the depositors to move their money to other banks. It seems pretty obvious that this regime has used religious piety as a tool of repression to hold on to power. And has that spell been broken? Are people thoroughly fed up with... Uh, I mean, the hijab is a, is a symbol of this revolution, but it's also uh, a means of repression, is it not? The, the Having these uh, morality police. I mean, the same thing in Saudi Arabia. That's how, they, how the royal family... Have, held on to power is is oppressing the people through religion. And the same thing's happening with the Taliban in Afghanistan. Uh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. One of the Iranian journalists uh, once said that hijab, imposed hijab for this regime is like Berlin Wall for communists. If it uh, f- uh, falls down, then this uh, system should go. And this is why the women are uh, uh, at the pillar of this revolution, I have to call it. And this is, uh, as the people chant in the streets, uh, I have to say that the pillar slogan of this uh, uh, movement is, this is a revolution for women, for life, for liberty. And negative campaign, the, another pillar, the, the slogan of the people is death to Khamenei, the dictator, uh, the leader uh, of Islamic Republic, death to, uh, we don't want to hold the regime, not any reform anymore. And uh, these two main slogans are now uh, the main demand of the, uh, the people. First, this regime should go. Second, we want a, a new uh, uh, society, new regime based on liberation for women uh, for, and equal rights for them, the life, normal life, uh, and uh, uh, liberty. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, uh, about the uh, Grand Ayatollahs, the religious top people, 
yesterday I received some information from inside regime that they are really worried about the Grand Ayatollahs, that some of them already has defended the people. They have started to bug their telephones uh, and uh, control them not to support the people. Although this young generation uh, doesn't care about the religion generally or or any Grand Ayatollah source of emulation in Shi'is and whatever. But they are important because of a narrow part of the society who is supporting this regime. Uh, and the regime is really concerned about the, uh, their opposition. Some of them started to say, but some of them not yet, uh, but they have started to bug them, to control them, and be careful about that. Anyway, I think that more than 90% of people of Iran, or maybe right now that we're talking 95% of the people of Iran, do not believe any in any legitimacy for Islamic Republic of Iran. And Velayat Fari, the leadership of uh, Khamenei uh, or his son, uh, and want to remove it from the power. This is uh, what, what is happening. And this regime has lost uh, whatever uh, was the base of power for, for, for it. And right now it has been, uh, you know, erected and it, it stands only on suppression machine. Uh, the, the only thing that, that kleptocracy that I agree with you, this regime is a kleptocracy. The, that kleptocracy uh, is in power because of the suppression machine. That's it. No other source of base of power in the society or uh, or even in the uh, system of this regime. And uh, this suppression machine has, uh, during last uh, 12 days, uh, we see the, the big cracks inside this suppression machine as well. Uh, I mean, in police, in Basij, the militia, in uh, intelligence, of uh, this regime, two big uh, intelligence organizations and revolutionary guard, which is the, the in in this suppression machine is the main part and uh, and the backbone of this suppression machine. Uh, we have lots of double thinkers. It, it's uh, it's so much that they, they have started to bug the middle. A range of the commanders of armed forces of Iran altogether. Uh, uh, maybe a few generals at the top, uh, they are with Khamenei uh, and uh, the leader. But one level down, I mean colonels, uh, majors uh, in police, in uh, revolutionary guard, they, many of them are now double thinkers and regime is really concerned about them. Well, Dr. Mushin Sazagar, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Mushin Sazagar, who's an Iranian journalist and pro-democracy political activist who was a founder of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps and held several high-ranking positions during the early years of the Iranian Revolution. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Asher Price. If you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or to publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared